It only takes two minutes of sheer horror. A new Paramount Plus original docuseries. We were dealing with a serial killer preying on elderly women. A cold-blooded killer hidden in plain sight. He's suffocating people with the pillows. Leaving corpses all over Texas. How did it happen? I was responsible for her. The guilt is immeasurable. They covered it up. Pillowcase Murders, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Hello and welcome to the 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show. Back for the second time this week, I am your host, Tani Levitt, and today is an exciting episode. I've been looking forward to doing this episode for the past few months, and now that the NBA draft withdrawal deadline has passed, we've got five big winners for you. Teams that have gotten back elite, elite talent, NBA-level talent, pro-level talent, coming back to college to compete for a national And so we're going to do a little whip-around episode with five experts who cover teams who got back some of their best players from last year's team, looking to make a statement and make an impact this year. But before we get there, it's been a tremendously, tremendously busy week in college basketball. Like Brian said on the Tuesday episode of the show, it feels like everybody's committing these days, commitments coming left and right. And before you think that it's just high schoolers making commitments, we saw very interesting uh, transfer commitment just yesterday. Nogel Eastern, former Purdue guard, big man, he has a confusing game, but he is definitely a contributor, formerly a top 75 recruit for 24-7 sports. Well, he was he decided earlier this offseason he was leaving Purdue and made noise that he was going to be staying in the Big Ten, was all but committed to Michigan, and then for academic reasons, he was unable to complete that transfer to Michigan, reopened up his recruitment for his transfer. And just this week, we found out Kenny Blakeney of the Howard Bison makes another huge pickup for Howard and the MIAC, picking up a commitment from No Gel Eastern. I, ha- I haven't been able to do my research yet, but I can't remember the last time that a MIAC has had two top 100 recruits on roster at the same time. It's got to be decades. So whether or not No Gel Eastern is going to be available to play for Howard this year, and if not, whether or not he'll ever actually overlap with McCormaker on the on in the game court as opposed to just the practice court that is yet to be seen nonetheless very interesting developments in the MIAC for the Howard Bison continuing along with this week of big news yesterday we saw Jeff Goodman from Stadium reported that the Big 10 and the Big East are considering bubble systems for college basketball and i personally find this tremendously compelling he noted that this is just one of many options that those two conferences and i'm sure all the major conferences are considering for basketball. There's, like I said the other week, a ton of consideration figuring out how they want to do it. But the idea of a bubble really jives with me. And I was thinking about it last night and, and I, I worked out this theoretical. And I'm sure this is something that all, all the people who are smarter than me who are making these decisions have already thought of. But just picture this. College basketball kind of already exists in, in, in many bubbles. When you think about the tip-off week. We have concurrent tournaments happening across the country. When you think about Feast Week, indeed across the country and on tropical islands as well. So college basketball is used to these kind of insulated tournaments, basically. It's a series of tournaments. And then after all those tournaments end, when 
it comes time for conference play, we basically have one big old tournament in each conference, a round-robin system, and then at the very end, a conference tournament, right? Well, what if the NCAA sets up a system where instead of having these big feast week tournaments, there are just small bubbles, eight teams in each bubble, every team plays three games over the course of a weekend, wait a couple weeks, re-quarantine, and then re-establish a new bubble with seven other new teams for each team, right? Do that two or three times. We've got six or maybe nine non-conference games, which is way more than, than I think we can expect. And then you do it again in conference play and hopefully get that full round robin in each conference and set up at the very end of it a bubble for the conference tournament. There are too many variables for me to be able to actually propose a real solution for how to do college basketball. There are myriad problems when it comes to logistics and travel and all sorts of things that I'm not privy to. Nonetheless, this, this tweet from Jeff Goodman about Big, Big East, Big Ten doing bubbles got me thinking about you know, how could we use bubbles to save as much a college basketball season as safely as possible with as much integrity as possible? And I think the bubble idea is compelling. I think what we're seeing from professional sports <laughs> suggests that maybe bubbling is, you know, the best option. So to be determined what this college basketball season looks like, but I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I think that people are working through good ideas and we will see what happens. Turning towards the bulk of this episode, there are a ton of teams who got back good news from the NBA draft withdrawal deadline. We're only going to cover five of them. We've got Iowa, Illinois, Baylor, LSU, and Arizona State. And I think I chose these five because they have interesting storylines. But there are other teams who, who got news as well. Michigan State, tough news. Xavier Tillman going to the draft. Aaron Henry is coming back, but without Tillman, who was the best defensive player in the country last year, that's a huge knock to the Spartans, probably going to drop out that title contender for me in that top of the Big Ten. Michigan got back good news. Isaiah Livers coming back to school. That's an interesting team. But I wanted to highlight these five teams because there is huge shift in, in the fate of these teams based on the guys that they got back. And there are tremendous storylines in each of these five programs. So without further ado, let's hop into it. We'll start in the Big Ten, move to the Big 12, and then after the break, hit the Pac-12 and SEC. So first up, we've got David Eicholt, who covers the Iowa Hawkeyes, and we are going to talk about potential National Player of the Year, Luca Garza, and his return to Iowa. All right, now bringing in David Eicholt. He's the lead reporter at Hawkeye Insider. And David, let's start here. You, you expected Luca Garza to come back to school, right? You know, I think for the most part, yes, but he has such a unique decision, I think, on, you know, on his hands because, you know, I, I've talked to, you know, his camp quite extensively throughout the process. He did give up a seven-figure deal in Europe for a one-year and a shoe deal on top of that as well. So, I mean, he had a very lucrative overseas contract. The NBA scouts I had talked to, while he might not have been drafted, I think there were a lot of teams that were considering him a potential two-way player. Um, and there was a point in time where I do believe he was going to leave Iowa probably for about two or three weeks. But, you know, knowing him, he's so built on loyalty. Uh, at the end of the day, I was not surprised to see him come back to Iowa. Mm -hmm. So now that he is back, like, how would you describe the mood around the program? Is it like expectant because, you know, they assumed he was going to be back, excited because now this unlocks Iowa's ceiling, or maybe even nervous because like now there are serious, serious expectations in the program? Yeah, you know, I think it's a mixture of a lot of things. I think that they weren't really, I wouldn't say expectant because, 
you know, until they actually hear the news. I mean, it's the best player in college basketball, at least in my opinion, last season, just uh, 24 points, 10 rebounds, averaging 26 points per game against top 25 teams in 12 ranked games. I mean, he was, he was doing things that the Big Ten hadn't seen in 50 years. And like you mentioned, I think this does unlock Iowa's ceiling. I think that they expect to be a Final Four contender, a national championship contender. And I think you look across the board, I wrote a column about this yesterday, Iowa fits that Wisconsin mold, I think, from a few years ago, back when they had Kaminsky in that dynamic offense. Uh, they have the best player in college basketball at center. They have a, a lot of perimeter shooters. I mean, they get Jordan Bohannon back for probably his 37th year in college basketball, it seems like, for a lot of people. Uh, C.J. Frederick, redshirt sophomore, 46% from three. Connor McCaffrey, nation's leader, assist turnover ratio. And Joe Wieskamp, who has NBA skill, and he could be – you know, a guy who does leave after his third year, a good three-point shooter, good athleticism. And Fran McCaffrey did say it's his uh, dream lineup that he's been waiting for his entire career. So expectations are high in Iowa City. Uh, Connor McCaffrey's 22. Jordan Bohan's 23. Luca Garza's, you know, 22. They have a very veteran group, and I think that will pay dividends, especially when they get down the stretch in March Madness. And I think that's why expectations are ultimately so high. Yeah, you, get, you just gave me a ton to work with there, and I'm going to have to build off of that answer for a couple <laughs> questions. So, like, we know that Luca Garza is Iowa's, potentially the nation's best offensive player. We know he can score in droves. But what does he unlock for, for the team around him? Because he's got these guys who all of them are good. Like you said, you, you, you know, rallied off their stats. But I don't think that they're necessarily stars on, necessarily stars on their own. So, like, what would the current team not be able to do without Luca Garza sitting there in the middle, kind of making things possible for the people around him? You know, I will say this. Iowa's front court would have been in deep trouble if Luca Garza hadn't come back. And it's not even just the dynamic impact. And like you said, he's such an offensive weapon. But they just don't have a lot of depth right there. They have Jack Nunji, who, you know, he's in his redshirt sophomore year, but he technically already has six years of eligibility because he had redshirted, and then he went down with a torn ACL five games in the season. And then their other prime big man who probably would have taken some minutes, Josh Ogundale, just came in two days ago from London because he was stuck in London throughout this entire COVID-19 pandemic. So if Luca Garza had gone, I mean, there is nobody proven uh, in the middle there. But with that being said, I mean, they, they would have had a lot of perimeter shooters, but they would have been a very interesting uh, – I think they probably would have been dead last in rebounding margin in the Big Ten, to say the least, and their defensive efficiency probably would, uh, would have been worse. But, you know, I think it, it's going to be – I think Iowa on a short scout is probably going to be the most hard, difficult team in the country. I don't really care if they lose eight games in the regular season. I'll still pick them to probably go at least to Sweet 16 in, in March because – it, it's such a tough matchup on a short scout. Like you said, you have Luka Garza there. And if the, if the conference's leading three-point shooter by percentage at 46% is Iowa's fourth go-to option, I mean, I think that just shows, you know, enough of how difficult it will be uh, to guard Iowa and why Iowa and Fran McCaffrey are so excited to play offense this season. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, before, before we kind of take a bit of a detour, I do think that Fran McCaffrey is excited to play offense every season. Defense, maybe a little less so. Um, <laughs> thinking about Luca Garza's decision to come back to school, I think the consensus is that he needs to work on defense. He, he would, uh, scouts would like to see him extend his shooting range and certainly work on his athleticism. I think Jerry Meyer said on the show last year that Luca Garza couldn't jump over a, a wafer. Uh, and so I'm curious, kind of, <laughs> what was what was the pitch throughout the process from Iowa to Luca Garza to come back? You know, what were they saying to him? How were they supporting him? And what were they telling him that if you come back, this is what we're going to do both for you and as a team? 
Well, I think right now to start with, I did confirm with his father, Frank Garza. I did do a giant series on Luca Garza's career, about 15,000 words, four feature stories on that. Uh, but look, basically, Iowa does have an insurance policy in place for Luca Garza. You know, if he goes down with an injury, he will uh, basically be compensated for what he would have earned for a pro career. There's a lot, there's a lot of people a lot smarter than me doing all those calculations that don't envy them. Uh, and, and again, I think something else to you know, take into consideration is they basically said, look, you can do something that's never been done. Uh, you can win a national championship. Iowa hasn't been to a Final Four since 1980, uh, which was in Indianapolis, by the way, and it'll be in Indianapolis this upcoming season. So Iowa fans are already drawing parallels between that. Uh, they have not won a Big Ten title since 1979. They haven't been to a Sweet 16 since 1999. So, I mean, there's a lot of things. I think Luka Garza can solidify himself as the greatest Iowa player uh, of all time. He only sits 558 points in the uh, school's all-time uh, scoring list. And like you said, I think he wants to come back. He showed he can be a good three-point shooter. I believe he shot about 35.8% last year. Believes He can be a 40-plus percent guy, and he was shooting 80% plus during – his NBA workouts, quote unquote, during his offseason workouts, his father would tweet out clips and he was hitting 24, 25 from 30 plus feet. So, you know, I, I think that uh, I think that goes a long way. I think he's excited. That they're going to give him more, more opportunities from distance. And I think he has gotten a lot, a lot quicker, quote unquote, but we'll still, still not give you quick and parallel to a lot of other people. Uh, but I think if he can defend ball screens better, and I think if he can be more of a rim protector, I think his stock can go a really long way. And on top of this, I mean, you know as well as I do, winning solves everything. If Iowa goes far, I mean, his stock's going to be just going up regardless. Absolutely. And and and, and so before we finish up with uh, your expectations for Iowa, now I'm curious about your expectations for Luca Garza himself this year. I had Kevin Flaherty on the show a couple months ago talking about these big NBA draft decisions. Uh, and he was thinking that if Luca Garza would come back to school, you know, maybe he might end up cutting back on his scoring a little bit and be facil- facilitate a bit more. That would be very interesting development. He was the Ken Palm Player of the Year last year. Could Luca Garza be the National Player of the Year this year? Yeah, I, I think he's gonna be the runaway preseason favorite by almost every outlet. I think just after what he did last season, and on top of Iowa being probably a preseason top ten, if not top five team, I think he's the obvious pick especially since he's proven he can produce at that level. I know there's some outstanding freshmen that might get some love as well. Uh, but look, I think, I think he hit the nail on the head. I think his scoring could go down a little bit, but with that being said, he'll still probably average 20 plus, 20 plus because it, it, it really does depend. I'm interested to see how teams do defend Iowa because if they go zone, if they collapse in on Luka Garza, like I mentioned, they have all the perimeter weapons on the outside. If they're going to go man, do you really want to put a ma- one man on Luka Garza? And on top of that, too, and I think this is a point that people haven't really identified yet, every big man that has experience guarding Luka Garza has gone to the NBA or graduated, besides Miles Johnson and I can't remember the other one. But think about John Teske is gone. Daniel Oturu from Minnesota is gone. Jalen Smith is gone. I mean, you can go up and down the roster. I mean, nobody has experience guarding Luka. So, I mean, he's going to be excited, I think, to kind of take over that. so, and as far as, look, my expectations for Iowa, I do think that – I think they can be a minimum an Elite Eight team. I think they are a prime Final Four team. But like you mentioned earlier, the defense has to be at least a little bit better. I mean, if they get top 70 in defensive efficiency rating by Ken Palm, I really do think that goes a long way because I think their offense – I think they're going to have the number one or number two offense in the country by Ken Palm. Uh, just, again, the experience, the shooting, and Luka Garza in the middle. Expectations are as high as they've ever been. 
And I think, you know, Fran McCaffrey, I wouldn't say he's feeling the pressure, but I think he knows if he really wants to get something special done, I think it has to be this season. Mm -hmm. I assume the other guy is Kofi Coburn back for Illinois. Kofi Coburn, yep. Yeah, I think Kofi Coburn and Seth Towns over at Ohio State against uh, Luca Garza will be the two most intriguing individual one-on-one matchups of the year. That, that, that'll just be an absolute war down on the block. So you actually did a really nice pod with uh, Jeremy Werner the other day uh, talking about the top of the Big Ten where you guys compared Illinois and um, Iowa. And along with Wisconsin, those are the top three consensus in the Big Ten. Iowa is top 10, if not top five nationally by most rankings. Where do you expect Iowa to finish the season in conference and then nationally? Yeah, you know, I I am going to pick Iowa to win the conference. I think the offense is too dynamic. I think if they can win, if they can beat Illinois one like uh, in both matchups, I think that'll seal the deal. I'm not really sold on Wisconsin. I know they won. It sounds crazy. I know they want to share the title last year. They returned everybody. They have five stars. I just think, you know, in order to get it done, especially this season, I think they, they're going to need a superstar, and they don't have a superstar. They have a very good team, but uh, I just don't know if that will get done. And I'll say this. I'm not counting out Michigan State. Okay, they, you know, they lost Cassius Winston. They lost Xavier Tillman, but Rocket Watts, I think, is going to be a very good Big Ten player. I think he'll be first team all Big Ten. Um, and they have the Izzo factor. So as far as that, I am going to pick – I think I'm picking Iowa right now, but I will say I've gone back and forth between them and Illinois because I, I – Oh, I want, I'm signing up for every Iowa-Illinois game this year because the two teams just don't like each other either whatsoever. As far as nationally, I think Iowa is going to at least make an Elite Eight. Am I convinced they're going to make the Final Four? Not quite yet. I do want to see if they can be a top 70 defense and if they stay healthy because there were a lot of injury issues last season. And I think that's you know partially why Luca Garza uh, couldn't play as much defense as he had wanted to because he couldn't foul out. Because if he fouled out, then you know they, they, the offense would just – uh, completely falter. But I think they're an Elite Eight team. And again, I think they're going to be one of, if not the most difficult team to guard on a short scout. And that's why I'm giving them the edge in one of those tournament settings. Yeah, I think uh, as, as we close out here, I will, will certainly be one of those teams where you really have to check their matchups because if they're going to come up against a team that is, if not equal, but similar to them in terms of offensive firepower, they may have a real trouble on the defensive end. Thank you so much, David Eichel. Really excited. We're going to have to get you back on the show as we get closer to the season. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, appreciate it. Thank you. All right, cool. Welcoming in now, back to the show, Jeremy Werner, publisher of Illini Inquirer and also the host of the rapidly rising Illini Inquirer podcast. Jeremy, good to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. How are you, man? I'm well, and I'm excited. You know, when when you know your team is going to be bad going into a season, much like I do with my Maryland Terrapins, it's exciting to kind of think about who who you're going to adopt for the season. Because obviously Maryland forever in my heart, and if they win games, then then I'll be with them. But if they play out the way they do, I think I'm going to be riding with Illinois, potentially with the most exciting teams in the country. So we'll start here. Io, Kofi Coburn, that's Io Desumu, guard, Kofi Coburn, star center, both coming back from the NBA draft to Illinois. Were you expecting either or both of these? And what's the mood now? 
I think when you have a single name, like both these guys, you said Io, Kofi, they're known as Io and Kofi. Uh, they're, they're big. You know they're that big when they got one name. It's like Kanye or something like that. Um, but yeah, these guys are stars coming back, and with both of them coming back, Illinois, as you said, is returning one of the best rosters in the country. They were one of the best teams in the Big Ten last year. I don't know how many people nationally know that. They were one game out of first place in that muddled uh, third uh, three teams finishing first place last year, but they were fourth, just a game behind Michigan State, Maryland, and and Wisconsin, and they basically return uh, the key guys from their roster. But we are surprised by Io DeSumo. He had told us all along, and I always take him for his word because he's always up front. He always said he was 99% in uh, on staying in the NBA draft. And I think, uh, and he basically said this, if it weren't for the pandemic, Io DeSumo probably wouldn't have come back for another year because he would have gone through a combine. He would have gone through uh, all the process and in pre-draft interviews where he would have done really well as a mature guy who's basically a pro's pro and he improved his game immensely now it didn't guarantee that he would have been a draft pick but I think he would have helped himself in the pre-draft process or at least he would have understood more of where he stood I I think the uncertainty of the pandemic not being able to do all these things and show out in front of everybody uh, in these NBA scouts really gave him too much uh, pause to be like okay I want to enter the NBA uh at the best point he knows he could have been drafted last year he could have been drafted this year but he wants he wants to have the best possible entry point where he can get the most money right away or set himself up for the most success this year he might have been a two-way player and teams might not be as invested in you in that kind of role as if they take you end of the first round early second round so that's what he's hoping for as for Kofi Coburn there was a little bit of nerves towards the end because he came on campus in May, then he left uh, in late July, and people were thinking he might just enter the draft. He wrote on Instagram that he's gonna t- life ain't worth living without taking some risks. So a lot of people thought, oh no, is he thinking of of, of uh, not coming back? But he needed to come back. Um, he's seven foot, two hundred eighty five pounds, a low post guy. Doesn't fit exactly what the NBA is looking for, but he's so physically dominant. He's he's a little bit different, and they can get up and down the court really quick um, that he could have had a chance to go, but nobody had him drafted. Uh, And I just think Illinois will invest so much time and effort into him. Unlike some professional teams, he would have made money. Uh, playing basketball, a lot of money playing basketball somewhere, but I just think for the long term, coming back for another year uh, will we'll definitely raise his draft stock, and, and he returns to the Big Ten Freshman of the Year, uh, one of the best rebounders, one of the best low-post presences uh, in the uh, college basketball, so I think he's got a, a great chance to really up uh, his stock, and obviously with those two coming back together, uh, Illinois could be really, really good. With, you know, coaches, it's really important to them to help out the players as they navigate the potential NBA draft process. You know, what was Illinois' pitch to these guys? If you come back, here's what we can work on with you to make you into those guys that you want to be, that NBA teams want you to be. Well, according to Brad Underwood and according to Io DeSumo, um, I think the biggest sell for Brad Underwood is he didn't try to sell. Illinois. Um, he was just saying, hey, we're going to give you space. They didn't talk uh, for a long time about this because Brad knew Io was kind of focused in and, and trying to get better. Of course, uh, if Io or Kofi wanted some advice, Brad Underwood was there, but they talked to most of the same people, right? It, it's the same NBA scouts, the same feedback they're kind of getting. Uh, but, uh, you know, when Io and Kofi wanted to come down to decision time, they talked with Underwood. Underwood said he would be supportive regardless of what their decision is because even if both these guys decide to go pro, it's been a long 
long time since Illinois has had a draft pick. Myers Leonard, uh, back in uh, 2012, was the last guy uh, to be drafted out of Illinois. And, and for a program that's got such great history uh, like Illinois, that's that's not a good stat. So that would have been a positive for Illinois to have Io DeSumo or Kofi Coburn be drafted. But obviously, I think for Brad Underwood, he said, now that they've made their decision, I can I can celebrate a little bit because um, this is huge for his tenure. Right? He, he didn't try and enforce these guys or try to convince them one way or the other. Uh, but these two guys coming back, Brad Underwood had one of the worst Big Ten programs two years ago. Now uh, he's got one that could win a Big Ten title. Uh, and in return, Illinois, to a place where Illini fans have long been hoping. This has been a bad decade uh, for Illinois basketball. Uh, but just 15 years ago, 16 years ago, they were Big Ten title contenders. They went to the national championship game 16 years prior to that. Uh, they went to the Final Four in 1989. So Illinois fans are hoping this 16-year cycle is that this is the next uh, Final Four team for them. Mm-hmm. So, so like you said earlier, I think people don't realize that last year's Illinois team finished 30th in Ken Palm. And like you said, the only guy of real consequence who left the team was Andre Feliz. Well, he, he was a guard. And it happens to be that Illinois is bringing in two big-time players, and Andre Curbelo, point guard, and Adam Miller, uh, a big-time shooting guard. Not to mention Trent Frazier, who, who's potentially one of the most underrated guards in the Big Ten. And with Ayo Dusuma coming back, I'm, you know, what does it mean for the backcourt rotation? How is that going to work out? Because there are four guys, clearly four guys who deserve big minutes. Yeah, Andres Felice um, and Alan Griffin is another kid who transferred to, to Syracuse. Those, those are two bigger losses, two of their top five scores. And and Andres Felice was just kind of the glue grit guy um, that you can't replace. And he was a guy that could get downhill and finish at the rim. Uh, he's going to have a pro career. Um, but uh, losing him and Alan Griffin, Alan Griffin was the best shooter on the worst shooting team in the Big Ten from three. Uh, so those are significant losses. But as you said, Andre Cabello is a top 50 point guard. A lot of people compare, or I think, he's got some similarities to Cassius Winston maybe undersized maybe not the most athletic but mature beyond his years makes decisions that NBA guards already make uh, and just a fantastic ball handler and makes everybody better Adam Miller reminds me a little bit of Jordan Poole uh, from Michigan a couple years ago. He was a first-round pick of the Warriors. Uh, can just get hot, shoot it from anywhere, and obviously he helps uh, there. But yeah, you, you mentioned it. Trent Frazier's back. Demonte Williams, who's a glue guy, great defender, a long guy, comes back. And they get two transfers, sit-out transfers they like. Uh, Austin Hutcherson's a D3 star who transferred to the Big Ten with Illinois. And Jacob Grandison from Holy Cross led them in scoring a couple years. So they're one of the deepest and most dangerous backcourts now they got to get those other guys uh, the transfers and the freshmen up to speed there'll probably be some growing pains but when you have Io DeSumo, Demonte Williams, Trent Frazier all upperclassmen who've started so many games uh, I think this is the best backcourt no question in the Big Ten and uh, one of the best backcourts in the country mm-hmm. so let's let's uh, look at Kofi for a second and then we could talk about Illinois as a whole uh Kofi, along with Luca Garza, and I know you did an awesome uh, crossover podcast with our, our boys over the Iowa site to talk about these draft decisions and comparing rosters. But with Kofi, you know, who are, who are you excited to see him match up against? Because getting him back in the Big Ten, I think, provides one of my two favorite one-on-one matchups with him and Luca Garza. I'm curious, you know, is there somebody else that you're excited to see him play against? 
Well, that that is the the one guy. Um, because the one great thing for Kofi coming back is while the Big Ten has been loaded uh, with big men, I think it's going to be hard for them to reload based on what they had last year. Xavier Tillman from Michigan State is gone. All right, defensive player of the year in the Big Ten. Daniel Otoro, a lot of people think to be a first round pick, he's gone uh, from Minnesota. Jalen Smith probably going to be a first round pick, he's gone from your Maryland Terrapins. That that's a lot of feasting that I think Kofi Coburn can do as a sophomore coming back. Uh, because a lot of those guys uh, had experience on him, and he struggled early on in Big Ten play to kind of counter that. You know, non-conference play, he was dominant because he's going up against six, 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 eight uh, guys from other schools, uh, smaller schools. Once he got to the Big Ten, he had a little bit of a learning curve, and Luca Garza owned him in, in the first game. Luca Garza had a big second half uh, in their second game uh, against Kofi, but Kofi blocked Garza to win that game, the final game we get to see of the season for Illinois to win uh, fourth place and, and get a double bye in the Big Ten tournament. So those are the two best big men. And now Garza's better. Uh, Garza's definitely better. I mean, he Kofi can't He's better shoot. better than everybody. Yeah, I mean, Garza's the best player in the country coming back. So uh, it's going to be, those are difficult matchups, but Illinois-Iowa has had such a great rivalry and, and those two big men uh, going up against it. Uh, I think Illinois and Iowa fans can't wait uh, and are hoping those games get played because uh, those are two Big Ten title contenders, two Final Four hopefuls, and uh, two really, really talented teams that that really don't like each other. Yep. Yeah, so, you know, where do you think uh, Illinois fits in in the Big Ten? Where do you think they fit in nationally? You know, I saw Illinois jumped all the way to sixth in Gary Parish's top twenty-five and one. I'm, I'm a little surprised to see them that high. I would have expected maybe a little lower in the top ten, but you know, with all the guys you mentioned, we haven't even mentioned. I'm going to get this right. Georgie Bejanishvili, and and he's a big-time piece. And so where do you think they fit in nationally and in the conference? Well, it's amazing. Georgie Bejanishvili is kind of the, you know, fan favorite just a couple years ago. Uh, it was a surprise recruit, averaged 12 points, five rebounds his freshman year. Uh, he had a really tough year last year just uh, kind of adjusting to Kofi. So he's their backup big man. And that's that's a pretty good rotation at, at the five for those guys. Uh, but I think there are four teams that go into the season thinking they can win uh, the Big Ten. Wisconsin is the one team you know that returns everybody that won a share of the Big Ten title last year. They don't don't have the elite talent level of some of these teams, but as we know with Wisconsin, um, they have depth and they just have their identity and they know what they do and it's hard to win up at Kohl Center. So I'm not counting them out. I just think there's more talent elsewhere. Michigan State losing Xavier. Tillman uh, and Cassius Winston obviously is is hard to overcome, but they have a lot of talent, and Tom Izzo's their coach. Rocket Watts, Aaron Henry, I think can take big steps forward, uh, but I think it's Illinois against Iowa, and I'm not trying to be Homer here, uh, but Iowa had was 11-9 in the Big Ten last year, and everyone's got them kind of win. A lot of people have them winning the Big Ten, uh, but they lost six of their last 11 games despite having Luka Garza, and I know they had some injury issues with Jordan Mohanan being out and some other guys, but they have never played defense under Fran McCaffrey. So while I think no. Iowa's offense is going to be the best in the country, and that's going to make them a national title contender, right? But consistency usually is from defense, and Illinois returns a defensive force uh, with Kofi Coburn at the rim. They return three really good defenders in Trent Frazier and Demonte Williams, who all will be in all Big Ten defensive team conversation, and Io DeSumo. So they don't have a lot of length and athleticism outside of Coburn uh, in the front court. They'll probably go a little smaller, but defensively, that's why they were successful last year. They didn't shoot the ball well, and they still finished fourth in the Big Ten. So while shooting the ball well, having a younger kind 
kind of second unit uh, are problems. I just think the depth, the frontline talent for Illinois, and the fact that they played pretty dang consistent defense compared to Iowa, I give them a, a slight edge over the Hawkeyes. And it, it, it's amazing to say. I mean, two years ago, Illinois started 6-15, and 15, and now I, I'm trying to, you know, realistically looking at the numbers, looking at what they come back, realistically they could be the Big Ten title favorite. Yeah, I mean, when, when you think about last year, top 40 in both offensive defense for Illinois, given the talent coming back and talent coming in, you have to assume at least a small, I mean, once you're already in that top 40, it's hard to make steps up. But I do think it's it's fair to project both on offense and on defense a small step up with growth from guys coming back and an infusion of talent. And when you look at Iowa, that's a, was it a top 100 barely defense? You know, if they can crack top 70, I think Iowa, you know, that's part of the conversation. But when you have a team like Illinois who can put up enough baskets and definitely defend, especially if uh, Kofi can really make a step up against Luka Garza, it's going to be an interesting season in the Big Ten for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's a lot of fun. And Illinois fans have been, as I've said, um, you know, they were in the national championship game 15 years ago. Um, you know, and, and Illinois fans thought they could keep it there. And Bruce Weber just couldn't recruit at the level, keep that program going after Bill Self left um, a few years prior to that national championship. Um, and, and it's been seven years since they've been in the NCAA tournament. Now, they should have been there last year before it got canceled. Uh, but uh, there's no doubt this is an NCAA tournament team coming in next year, and uh, they'll be competing for, for one of those top seeds. And it's been a long time coming for Illinois, but it's a huge credit to Brad Underwood, his staff, Orlando Antigua used to be a John Calipari assistant, Chin Coleman, a guy up in Chicago. Uh, They've made the right adjustments on the court and and they're getting the top talent to compete uh, with programs like Maryland, Michigan State, uh, the programs who have been up there uh, consistently. All right. Keep it locked here. 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show. Jeremy Werner, not the second time this offseason, certainly not the last before this uh, upcoming season is over. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, man. Moving from the Big Ten to the Big 12, up next is Tim Watkins, who's on to talk about the Baylor Bears. Baylor was probably going to be a Final Four contender last year had the tournament not been canceled, and they're bringing back a ton of talent, including All-American guard Jared Butler, and big, all Big 12 player, Macy Oteague. I actually learned that Macy Oteague's name is pronounced Maceo, not Makayo, during this interview, so I apologize to Maceo if he's listening to the show. I got his name wrong, but he's a really strong player, and along with Jared Butler, Macy Oteague has Baylor poised to compete for their first ever Big 12 title and potentially for a national championship. So here is Tim Watkins, publisher of Bears Illustrated. Bringing on Tim Watkins now, publisher of Bears Illustrated. After another week of many with good news for the Baylor Bears basketball program, Mikhail Teague, Jared Butler are now back in Waco. What is the excitement level about Baylor basketball right now? It's very high. I mean, you're talking about a team that was a legitimate top four seed in the NCAA tournament prior to its cancellation, bringing back four-fifths of its starting lineup. It's two leading scores. Two uh, of the, the better players in the Big 12 Conference in Macy Oteague, who is a second-team All-Big 12 guard, and then Jared Butler, who is a first-team All-Big 12 guard, as well as a third-team All-American. So Baylor is likely now bringing back two first-team All-Big 12 players and a likely preseason All-American candidate in Jared Butler now. So the expectations are, let's go win our first Big 12 championship. Yeah, I definitely want, I definitely want to get to uh, expectations 
for the next season. But I'm curious, kind of, were you aware of like a pitch from the Baylor coaching staff to these guys that say, hey, you know, if you decide that you're not, you feel you're not ready for the draft and you want to come back here, here are the things that we're going to work on to make you a viable first round pick next year. Because I think that's really part of the calculus when you have these guys who are for good reason testing the NBA draft wires. And I know Jared Butler, All-American, one of the best guards in the Big 12, but you know there are questions about his passing decisions. And you know similarly, Mikhail Teague, you know, what is his versatility? People are still curious. So was there a pitch from the coaching staff to these guys to say, we'll help you develop X, Y, and Z skills? It was definitely a soft pitch. They really wanted uh, both Butler and Teague to make their own decision, really treated it as a sounding board. You know, that's part of the overall culture uh, that they created at Baylor University, really treating these as men, treating it as a family environment, wanting the best for them. Teague is a college graduate. He would be coming back as a graduate uh, a program person coming back. He, he didn't have to come back. More than likely, he wasn't looking at an NBA decision. He was looking at a professional career overseas decision. So understanding the positives is coming back and getting a graduate degree from Baylor University, understanding that they had something really special brewing at Baylor and they have unfinished business. Last year could have checked off a lot of new boxes that Scott Drew and the Baylor Bear program haven't done since the 1940s and 1950s going to a final four, winning a conference championship. These things haven't happened for Baylor since 1950. With Butler, it was a tougher decision. He was looking at a mid to early second round pick, understanding the math behind what happens if you improve your passing skills, your decision making, your athleticism, and get into a guaranteed first round spot. What does that financially look like? Benefit swayed both Teague and Butler to come back, but Baylor definitely wanted the best for them and would have understood both of them going and pursuing their professional careers and really operating as a sounding board to say, this is what we think. The choice is up to yours. We're not going to pressure you. You have a spot if you want it still, um, but we want you back. But looking back at, at Scott Drew's rotation over at towards the end of the season, really, because I think that's the most telling. All 10 of his most frequent lineups for Scott Drew had either Jared Butler or Mikhail Teague in the, in the lineup, if not both of them. And so I'm curious, you know, were they expecting one? Were they expecting both? Were they expecting neither to come back to school? Because I think obviously getting both is just, you know, a huge gift for the Baylor team. I think throughout the process, there was confidence that both would return. There was never, yeah, they're going to come back. Yeah, they're going to come back. It's like, we think the feeling is more that they're both going to come back. Personally, I think more concern was over T coming back. Um, because again, he is a graduate. He had international and overseas opportunities. Uh, if he could have gone through a traditional uh, NBA combine and draft process, maybe he could have snuck into the second round. Um, but there were a lot of concerns about, you know, what's his upside left? How much can he improve in the eyes of the NBA draft holders? He's not probably going to be able to improve himself to a first-round pick like Jared Butler can. That resonates a lot more, and Butler is only entering his junior year, and he's a young junior. Teague is an older senior, an older player that limits the upside in the eyes of the NBA. So there was more confidence on Butler returning, less on Teague, but both I heard throughout the process, look, these guys are going through the process. 
they're going to make the decision, and more than likely it's going to be to come back to Baylor. With these guys back now, we got a pair of incoming transfers, the number 28 recruiting class in the country, highlighted by Dayton Danger and LJ Cryer. Really strong team in terms of very interesting names. You got Flo Thamba coming off the bench. Depth across the rotation and just losing two rotation players. Where do you expect this Baylor team to be different from last year's team? And where in those differences do you see growth potential? Because obviously this is a tremendous basketball team. Last year, a definite Final Four contender. But when you see teams that get guys back from the NBA draft and go on to special things, you, there's usually a step up in some part of the team's development. So I'm, where do you foresee that in Baylor? The biggest change and the biggest loss is really Freddie Gillespie on the inside, a tremendous and top-tier offensive rebounder. Uh, Tristan Clark, who was sensational as a sophomore scoring the bucket, scoring into the basket, low post, shot 75% on two-point field goals, uh, led the nation really in efficiency as a sophomore prior to a mid-Big 12 season injury. Um, he's not that type of player. He is significantly more skilled offensively, better passer, probably a better shot blocker, but not the caliber of rebounder that they saw from Freddie Gillespie uh, in the 2019-2020 season. So replacing Gillespie for Clark is definitely going to change the dynamics offensively. They're going to be able to drop the ball into the low post more. That's if Clark is fully healthy. Um, that's still the biggest question around the Baylor Bears. If he's not healthy, they're going to take a step back in that center production from Gillespie to Clark. Flo Thamba has struggled at times with his minutes. There's some hoping really to be able to get him a, uh, a redshirt season to really benefit as so many Big 12 players or Baylor players have with redshirt seasons. Um, I won't even try to bother saying his name. JTT, the transfer from uh, UNLV, is a shot blocker, rebounder. He transferred last year from UNLV, sat out. He's going to be playing a lot. He looks more like the Freddie Gillespie type to me. Uh, you have Adam Flagler, who is a very different type of player than Devontae Pandu, really occupying that fourth guard or first off the bench guard spot. So there's going to be a little bit of differences this year. Every team is always a little bit different. Even if you return everybody, guys get older. Guys change their personalities a little bit. They change their games a little bit. So this is going to be a different team. And one, if Clark can get back to what he was as a sophomore, likely has a higher upside than last year's Baylor team. Everything has gone right for Baylor this offseason. When you talk about there was a moment a few weeks ago when Baylor's class of 2021 recruiting was the number one in the country. Not right now, they're sitting at number three. They got their two best players back from the draft. They're bringing in a very strong recruiting class. Plus, not to mention those transfers you already listed out. Is this the best Baylor offseason of all time? And looking forward into this next season, is this the best Baylor team of all time? I, I think both of those are yeses. It's early to say that in terms of the best team, but in regards to the offseason, absolutely. Uh, the last time Baylor was in this position, Baylor fans might cringe, but Quincy Miller just said he was going to come back for a sophomore year and then a couple weeks later said, ah, I'm not. I'm going to go in the NBA draft and broke a lot of Baylor's fans' heart because that small forward position was a major weak spot for Baylor the next year, caused them to miss the NCAA tournament and really not live up to the expectations that they had. Uh, this season, we are returning everybody that could have returned. We are getting three top tier, top 50, according to 24-7 sports, 
uh, recruits. Kendall Brown is a legit five-star, consensus five-star. Langston Love and Jeremy Sokan, two guys that really fit what Baylor does on both sides of the ball. Long, athletic, uh, very solid defensive players. Should be able to play both the zone that Drew has been known for and the man defense that Baylor really let their program go to the next level when they transitioned to a no inside defense this past season. You know, Kendall Brown, Kendall Brown profiles as an elite wing defender, something that Baylor had last year with Mark Vidal. Langston Love profiles as a strong to elite guard defender, something Baylor had with Macy O.T. So you start to see things stacking up. And, and, and really the reason for that is five weeks is the number one team in the nation winning 20-plus games in a row, challenging a elite Kansas team for the Big 12 title. And then off the court, the news and the development of a new basketball arena, getting out of the Farrell Center, uh, really bringing their facilities up to the next level, hopefully kicking that construction off whenever COVID kind of settles down a little bit, and looking at 2023, worst case, maybe 2024 opening of that new uh, basketball arena. So there's lots of optimism around a program and something that Scott Drew has been building throughout his long-term tenure as ba- at Baylor as now easily the second longest tenured coach in the Big 12 behind uh, Bill Self. Well, I, if, if I had to guess, I'd set the over-under at approximately 12 and a half years before we have the Scott Drew statue somewhere on Baylor's campus. Tim Watkins, thank you so much for coming on and talking Baylor basketball. Really looking forward to uh, seeing what they can do and likely to have you back on the show later this season. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks again to Tim. We're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, we're going to talk about LSU and Arizona State, two teams who are very interesting, but maybe unlike Iowa, Illinois, or Baylor, LSU and Arizona probably are hoping more for a conference title than maybe a national title. Final Four, not necessarily in their consideration. So we're going to take a quick break and get back to some up and coming teams on the other side of the break. Stay tuned. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Baseball has begun, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today in 5, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Samphill, every Monday through Saturday as we deliver all of your fantasy baseball needs in just five minutes. We'll break down the biggest performers, news, and prospects who could make an impact this season. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. All right, and we're back, 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show with Billy M. Body, publisher, go 24-7, to talk about LSU, big moves. Back when we did our SEC summer check-in with Kevin Flaherty, we talked about how LSU was probably the biggest question mark in the conference when they had so much talent, kind of, with one foot in the NBA, one foot in college. Well, we found out this week that Javante Smart, Darius Days, and Trendon Watford are all coming back. And Billy, you know, how surprised are you that all three are back? How excited are you that all three are back? Well, I think, first of all, the thing that really threw a wrench, I think, in somebody like Trendon Watford's plans was COVID-19. And that's the reality that 
we live in in this world. And uh, he probably could have gone off to the NBA. He would have interviewed really well. He would have done, I think, pretty strong in on-court workouts, especially on the offensive side. But instead, he opts to come back to LSU and prepare his body and, and get a little bit better defensively and positionally, I think, for the NBA for another year. And he kind of mentioned that and alluding to the fact that he'll probably be out the door after his sophomore year. But with Darius Days and Javante Smart, I think both of them and even Javante, who led the SEC in assist-to-turnover ratio, those two guys kind of seem like four-year college guys at this point. And, and both are very, very good. Javante Smart is one of the best point guards in the SEC in just his first year as a starting point guard after taking over for Tremont Waters. And then Darius Days is probably going to be one of the better players four-year-wise that has come through LSU in the last few years. He's got to clean up some some of his issues with fouling and, uh, again, kind of defensively, but he's a very, very efficient offensive player. And it's not too surprising to see all three back, but I think in a different world, we don't see this happen uh, like it did. Mm-hmm. So, so you talk about kind of the things that Darius Days has to work on, and I'm curious, for all three of them, are you aware, what was the pitch from Coach Will Wade to these guys to say, you know, hey, I'm supporting you no matter what you do, but if you come back, here's what we're going to do for you as individuals so that next year you're really going to maximize yourself when you go pro. For Trendon Watford, especially having the amount of talent Will Wade brought in, he brought in five-star shooting guard Cameron Thomas, who's one of the best scorers probably in college basketball right from the jump. I and mean, he's was the best scorer in the Nike UYBL for a couple years. And that usually translates pretty well to high major college basketball. And he's a another player that could go in the NBA draft next year. And then you have Javante Smart coming back and you have Darius Days and you add Mawani Wilkinson and Brian Penn Johnson and Josh Gray and Josh LeBlanc and, and, and Sharif O'Neal, a lot of quality players to this roster that can complement Trendon Watford and allow him to not feel like he has to do it all. And I think that was the problem for Trendon Watford at times last year is he felt like he had a lot on his shoulder shoulders between him and Skylar Mays really having to lead the way offensively. Emmett Williams was kind of inconsistent. Darius Days uh, was in foul trouble at times. And Javante Smart was still, over the course of the season, getting his feet wet, being that point guard for LSU. And so for Trenton Watford, it was more of, hey, come back. You've got all this talent around you. We already finished in the top four last year. Let's go win an SEC title and you can be on your way to the NBA. For Darius Days and Javante Smart, again, more development. I think a chance to win another SEC title. They won one as true freshmen uh, earlier in, in their careers in Baton Rouge. And now they'll have a chance to do something that I, I can't remember when LSU's won you know, a couple SEC titles uh, over the course of, uh, you know, having having certain guys on, on campus for that. Uh, so Javante Smart and Darius Days have a chance to do something very special in Baton Rouge and to round out their careers uh, with, with another championship and continue to just put together good tape and, and, and develop as college basketball players. So, yeah, you kind of you kind of dipped into this. LSU really only graduated one real rotation player, two if you kind of go down to the 10-minute game range, and they're bringing in eight guys, three transfers, and a packed 
recruiting class, which is third in the SEC, but that's tremendously misleading because it's sixth in the country, highlighted by Cam Thomas. These aren't scrubs that they're bringing in from the transfer porter either. When you're talking about LeBlanc, Sharif O'Neal, how are, how are these minutes going to fall out now that there is just a, a deep, deep roster for Will Wade? I think one thing Will Wade wants to do this year is to improve defensively. That's been an issue, especially defending the three, for kind of much of the time he's been at LSU, which is pretty crazy to think year one they went to NIT, they won the SEC in year two, and then last year they would have been an NCAA tournament team if not for COVID. And that is the issue, though. They have to to take the next step in the development of the program. They've got to be better defensively. And so Will Wade really went out and got Brian Penn Johnson, the transfer from Washington, and Josh Gray in this 2020 class to be seven-footers in the middle and allow Trenton Watford, Darius Days, Mawani Wilkinson, Josh LeBlanc to maybe be a little bit more aggressive defensively at getting out to the perimeter from the three and the four spots. And that'll allow them, theoretically, to be a little bit better at defending the three And then also that whole just depth that he's added, Will Wade's added to this roster is so critical because they really played with probably a six, seven man rotation last year. And especially at the guard positions where it was really Javante Smart and Skylar Mays. And that was it because Marlon Taylor was hurt. Charles Manning was hurt at certain times last year. And so they never really had the full roster that Will Wade thought he was going to have. And this year, they're going to have a, a 10, 11 deep roster where he can probably feel pretty good about rolling these guys out there in certain situations throughout the year. And especially as they get their feet wet. And, and, and if you look at the freshmen like Eric Gaines and Jalen Cook and Milwaukee Wilkinson, who might need a little bit more time to adjust and, and to physically adapt, there's also some of the veteran players like Charles Manning being back. Uh, some of the older guys that, that are going to be eligible at some points, Josh LeBlanc, uh, to, to kind of take that off of the shoulders of Javante Smart and Cam Thomas, who are really expected to shoulder much of the load offensively and, and play a ton of minutes. So they they just have a, a, a renewed depth that they haven't had since that SEC title year. And theoretically, that's going to allow them to uh, to maybe take another step forward and and be uh, even closer to another SEC crown. All right. So in conclusion, before we knew the the outcomes of these draft decisions, Kevin Flaherty had LSU at fifth in the SEC. Even now, after these draft decisions, Gary Parrish over at CBS Sports, he doesn't even have LSU in his top 25 and one, which was honestly a bit surprising to me considering his number one philosophy is when you get guys back with experience and then you bring in talent like uh, LSU did in this recruiting class. That's that's a recipe for success. So I was surprised to see that they weren't in his top 25 and one. What is the upside for this LSU team? I think the upside for this LSU team is a chance to win an SEC title. They have the talent. They have the experience. That, that can happen. That's in their realm of possibilities. I do think they're a top three team in the SEC. For me, I look at last year's roster and over the course of that season, we were covering it and we were sitting there saying, how are they, how are they doing this? How are they putting together wins 
for the most part, night after night. And they had their moments where they really struggled and it cost them. The loss at Vanderbilt was really, really bad. Uh, They had a couple others in there that were head scratchers. But at the end of the day, they ended up top four in the SEC. And Will Wade was able to orchestrate another strong season. And now with all of this depth, with this talent, I, I just don't see how he doesn't do that. And, and, and improves off of last season because he's one of the best in-game coaches, especially in the SEC. And you talk to anybody in the SEC and they'll tell you that. So I do think he's a little probably slept on and disrespected just with all of the things that have gone on, I think, over the last two years. But, but he is one of the best in-game coaches in the SEC. He prepares as well as anyone. And, and I think that's a credit to him and his staff and when, you, when I look at this team, I see a top 25 team, and, and I think they've got a chance to challenge for the SEC title. It's about them coming together with this experience and this new talent and depth and putting it all together, and that's on Will Wade. Yeah, I, I'm hard-pressed to see how they finish outside the top three in the SEC. Billy, thanks so much for coming on the show. I don't want to keep you. I know you've got a trip to the beach coming up. Uh, yeah, a little vacation uh, with the fam coming up. So appreciate uh, uh, you know you bringing me on and everything. It was fun. Yeah, you'll have to take a listen to the show when you're relaxing. We got other uh, other stuff coming up. <laughs> Billy, thanks so much. Of course, thanks for having me. Last up, we've got Chris Cartman, who covers the Arizona State Sun Devils for the Sun Devil Report. That's twenty four seven Sports Arizona State site. He's got the news on Remy Martin and Alonzo Verge, two star players for Arizona State, who decided to come back from the NBA draft. Martin and Verge combined last year to average over 30 points a game, seven rebounds, six assists, three steals, so two enormous contributors for the Sun Devils, who they're going to pair with incoming five-star guard Josh Christopher. It's going to be an interesting team, especially with Coach Hurley building a program slowly, 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 potentially building into a Pac-12 power. And before we let Chris go, we also have a question in the five-star reviews about Arizona State recruiting and what they're going to do with their top two recruits, Josh Christopher and Marcus Bagley. Here's Chris Cartman on the Arizona State Sun Devils. All right, we've got Arizona State talk with Chris Cartman. He's the publisher at Sun Devil Source. Chris, Remy Martin, Alonzo Verge, back from the NBA draft. What does this mean for Arizona State? Should be Bobby Hurley's best team, at least on paper, right? You have Remy Martin, the leading returning scorer in the Pac-12. He's poised to challenge some records uh, historically at ASU, including the all-time assist leader. Sun Devils have never won 20 games in four straight seasons, and that's uh, something that looks pretty likely at this point. Uh, Lonzo Verge was the leading scorer off the bench nationally, in all of Division One basketball last year, really kind of got it together in the second half of the season, figured it out after being a, a junior college All-American uh, the year prior. And um, then when you throw in, of course, five-star guard Josh Christopher, it, it makes for one of the most potent backcourts in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely want to hit on uh, some Josh Christopher stuff later. But before we kind of move on from Remy and Alonzo, each of them near 30% usage rate last year, 30 points, seven rebounds, six assists, and three steals combined, and that's average. And so with that in mind, they, they've been doing a lot already for Arizona State. And, and I've been saying this to all of our people that I'm talking to on this show. 
part of the coach's role as when you have players kind of straddling the line between the NBA and staying in college is, is to be a sounding board. But also the idea is to let these players know what they will get out of another year at school. So I'm, I wonder what you can offer to guys who have already been so productive at the college level to improve their draft stock. It's a great question. I, my understanding is that Remy was told by some of these front offices that they wanted to see him continue to refine his three point shooting and then just go to the next level as a, a playmaker and a, a, just a floor general on the offensive end. He has at times uh, been so headstrong that he's been focused on uh, taking over games, making sure that he gets his points, putting the team on his back. I think in part that contributed to some challenges uh, integrating with Alonzo Verge, who's also really a heavy on-ball scorer. And so they kind of figured it out as the season wore on and uh, were much better at, at picking their spots and playing off one another in February and then into March a little bit. And, and so I think that they were really in a good place and it took some time, but they're going to be much better this year at being able to understand how they can work really well off one another and also make the, the entire team uh, better as a whole. The Sun Devils play so fast at times and Bobby Hurley gives him so much freedom that uh, it comes with some bad decision-making at times, uh, some rush shots uh, early in, in possessions. Uh, Martin has had a tendency to take too many uh, long twos, especially uh, on the break or in transition situations that are not really a high volume, uh, high percentage sort of a shot that you should be, should be taken too much uh, just based on analytics, but he tends to make a lot of them and, and Hurley, uh, again, he gives his players so much freedom. I just think that they want to see at the next level uh, some decision-making and some setup play that uh, projects more to that uh, style of basketball. Like you said earlier, a tremendous offseason for Arizona State. Certainly the best in recent memory by my calculation. Number seven national rank in terms of recruiting. Number two class ranking in the Pac-12. Not to mention bringing in five-star Joshua Christopher. And I'm looking at last year's roster, and I, I see Romella White transferring away. And I see Joshua Christopher coming in. And I see two strong guards coming back from the NBA draft. And I see not for this year, but for next year, Luther Muhammad transferring in another guard. And I, I just... Is this going to be like just super backcourt heavy and really front-loaded or back-loaded, however you want to say it, where what are they going to do in the front court uh, to kind of raise up to the level that we know the backcourt will be at? Yeah, that's definitely the biggest question. And the Romello White departure was unexpected inside the program and one that I think was pretty frustrating because had he been back, that would have been probably the, the best double-double uh, consistent candidate in the conference. So uh, losing him was a big hit. Now, I will say that as a freshman last year, Jalen Graham demonstrated to me that he was actually capable of playing more than around 10 minutes a game that he, that he garnered. Uh, he has really great timing and feel. Uh, as an anchor defensively with shot blocking. He's a, a good rebounder, a quick leaper. Uh, he plays longer than he is. 
apparently he's grown about an inch in the last year and he started to fill out more. And even on the offensive end, he has very good timing. Uh, he's patient. He has a good uh, base with his feet and he can score over both shoulders. So I think he's poised to really uh, uh, show people that he's capable of a lot more this year. And, uh, and then they'll probably play some small ball where you'll have some lineups that are, nobody's taller than about six foot eight on the court. Um, and they'll ask a lot from a, a rebounding and defensive standpoint of their forwards, uh, including just uh, uh, some veteran guys who I think haven't played to their full capability to this point, especially Kamani Lawrence. There were times early on that he looked like he might become one of the better players in the Sun Devil uniform, broke his foot as a freshman, struggled to come back from that, then had a hard time sort of figuring out what his role would be. Uh, he looks like an NBA athlete, but just hasn't played uh, to that ability. Tayshawn Cherry is a floor-stretching six-foot-eight uh, player who at times ha has uh, looked like somebody who could be all-conference, but hasn't really been able to put it together and has had some, some injury issues. Bobby Hurley just yesterday actually was talking about how impressed he's been by Marcus Bagley. Uh, the, the younger brother of Marvin Bagley uh, and a, a top 30 borderline top national prospect, a really great shooting uh, wing at six foot seven. Uh, someone that I think that they could use as a little bit of an undersized foreman to space the floor really well uh, for their guards. So I think that they have some pieces, but they don't have that, uh, that, that anchor in the middle who has been uh, a demonstrated uh, big time weapon. Yeah. So, so interesting. I think like most college basketball fans, this, this summer has been an opportunity for me to learn a lot about Arizona state. They haven't really been on my radar and, and to see this kind of class with Bagley and Christopher coming in, it, it, it seems to me that they're going to be a team that's made a real step up. They finished the year last year, 63rd in Ken Palm. Don't look now, but number 26 in Gary Parrish's top 25 and one. And I think, me or I and a lot of other college basketball fans are just wondering, you know, what is the upside for this team given the size limitations, given the experience limitations in the front court? Yeah, I think if you look at the way the Pac-12 shapes up this year in particular, uh, that's sort of the question uh, that proliferates the conference and, and maybe even college basketball overall. It's really hard to keep those uh, skilled big men with size in college basketball for more than a year at this point. And uh, the Pac-12 lost all the guys like that, uh, some of whom were just freshmen last year after one year. Uh, I don't know other than like Jalen Hill at UCLA that there's anybody who's a really established uh, uh, presence uh, as a four or five man. And so what's going to happen is teams are going to play smaller. It kind of um, reflects well for ASU in terms of the way that the rest of the conference's composition is. But then you get into a national play in the tournament and you're going to have to be able to have more than that, uh, especially on the defensive end and, and just making sure that you secure the glass. And those are the questions that perhaps limit ASU's ultimate upside. I do think this is a top 25 caliber team. I'm not sure that they have those interior uh, horses that are going to enable them to push up uh, beyond maybe like the top 10 or 15.
Okay. Well, before I let you go, we have a listener, Hi025, who is a big Arizona State fan and a huge supporter of the 24-7 Sports Podcast Network. I've been looking to have an opportunity to get you on the show. He asked a couple questions in a five-star review. And listeners, if you want to get a question on the show, put that in a five-star review. I promise you we'll get to it on the show just like we are right now. And he asked a detailed recruiting question that maybe we'll get to on another time. But he did want to know a little more detailed stuff about uh, Joshua Christopher and Bagley. You know, Do you think that they could possibly start together? If not, which of them do you expect to come off the bench? What kind of impact would they have? Yeah, so I definitely do expect Christopher to start. Uh, my belief is they'll go with a three-guard lineup that features Remy Martin, Alonzo Verge, and Josh Christopher. Um, it, there's going to be um, you know some issues getting that assimilation down because they're such all such uh, ball dominant players, right? And that was tough last year. It's going to be probably even a little bit tougher this year now that you have three guys like that. Uh, but because the NBA wants to see more ball distribution from Martin and even Verge, uh, perhaps they're able to figure that out. And then um, there, there's really three players competing for the fifth starting job. And that really is, as I mentioned earlier, Kamani Lawrence, Tayshawn Cherry, and then Bagley. And I personally think that Bagley is going to end up emerging from that trio and being the starter, although it may take some games to sort of re- resolve itself, uh, his his skill package and uh, his feel, I think, is just really good for a freshman. And he's improved so much in the last year, ascending up the rankings, and uh, and what he provides as a shooter, uh, as a an undersized four man in a, in some of these lineups, I think is really going to be uh, viewed positively by Bobby Hurley. Yeah, absolutely. Last year, Arizona State finished outside the top 100 in offensive efficiency, but inside the top 50 in defensive efficiency with influx of talent in size, uh, without size, and the departure of Romello White. I imagine that might be switched this year, which would bode well for neutrals who want to watch Arizona State right before they go to bed. We will have to have you back on the show as we see this team develop. Chris, really appreciate you coming on the 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show. Oh, man, it was my pleasure. Anytime. Absolutely. All right. Thanks again to Chris for coming on the show. And thanks to Billy, Tim, Jeremy, and David for coming on as well. Those five teams aren't the only ones who are winners from the draft withdrawal deadline. But I did think that they were maybe the five whose returns changed storylines more than anybody else's. So really exciting to hear what those analysts had to say. We're definitely going to have to check back with them over the course of the season to see how these things play out. Luca Garza, player of the year, potentially Illinois, maybe win a Big Ten. Baylor national champions, LSU, could they compete in the top of the SEC? Arizona State, this is a program that's developing and building something special, so maybe this is the year they take a step up into that top three of the Pac-12. One thing's for sure, things are going moving very quickly in college basketball these days with recruitment, updates about what the schedule might look like, updates about who's going to be on which rosters. We've seen some football players been opting out, some really high-level football players opting out this week. And I think it's only a matter of time before we start seeing something similar on the basketball side of things. Hope you've enjoyed the content we've been doing this offseason. I've really enjoyed putting it together for you. And if you've been enjoying what we do here on the 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show, hope you'll take the time to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, maybe even give a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. 
It means a world difference, makes a big difference in those big office meetings that I have with the grown-ups at 24-7 Sports. Really appreciate it to all those people who already have, especially Hi025, who brought in a question for today's show. If you want to have a question about college basketball answered on this show, drop that guy in a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I promise we'll get to it. It's been a long episode, so I think that's going to do it today. I'm Tiny Levitt, and this has been the 24-7 Sports College Basketball Show. Hello, everyone. It's Michael Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on. It's called The Rest is Football. It's me, alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean, outrageous. Just search The Rest is Football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Meets.